Welcome to History Talk from Origins, Current Events and Historical Perspective. I'm your host, Leticia Wiggins at Ohio State University. And I'm your other host, Patrick Payandi. Today's show focuses on an event that has proven controversial now for a hundred years. In 1915, in the lands of what would become modern-day Turkey, the Ottoman Empire committed what has come to be known by some as the Armenian Genocide. In the midst of the brutalizing strains of World War I, and as the Ottoman Empire suffered through what we now know were its last days, Turkish officials oversaw the deportation and massacre of anywhere between several hundred thousand and 1.5 million Armenian people. The result was the physical annihilation of the Armenian communities that had lived in the Anatolian Peninsula for more than 2,500 years. But labeling the event a quote-unquote genocide has remained controversial to say the least. Turkey has steadfastly refused to call the Armenian deaths a genocide, arguing that the Armenian victims were not as numerous as some Armenians might hold and that they were actually combatants in a civil war. The perpetrators faced no real consequences in the years that followed, and some would go on to form the modern Republic of Turkey in 1923, with its aggressive focus on secular Turkish nationalism. The Armenians, meanwhile, have long called for the word to reconcile with the past, seeking official and public recognition of the 1915 mass killings as a genocide. On today's History Talk, three guests join us to discuss this fraught history and its continuing legacy, and to commemorate the 100th anniversary of the beginning of this violence. We'll ask them about the background of the Ottoman Empire, the fundamental disagreement between the Armenians and the Turks over what happened, and, among many other issues, the complexities of the label genocide in history and international law. So stay tuned. I'm Ronald Suni. Uh, I'm at the University of Michigan History Professor and the author of a book that is just now coming out called They Can Live in the Desert But Nowhere Else. A History of the Armenian Genocide, published by Princeton University Press. Hi, I'm Aisha Baltajola-Bremer. I'm a PhD candidate at Ohio State University. Uh, I am mainly working on Muslim minorities uh, of the Ottoman Empire. And I'm John Quigley from the College of Law at the Ohio State University. I've I've done some writing on genocide. I have a book about the Genocide Convention. It's called The Genocide Convention uh, from 2006, and I've been involved in some international litigation in relation to genocide. Wonderful. Well, we thank all three of you for joining us today. This this event took place, place in eastern Anatolia in 1915. We were wondering who was living there, and how did they end up in the Ottoman Empire? And what were the Ottoman policies toward the region in the years leading up to 1915? And Ron, we'll ask you to begin here. Uh, Eastern Anatolia, what had been historic Armenia, had been conquered by the Turks, first the Seljuks and then the Ottomans, uh, beginning in the 12th century, 11th century, 12th century, and then right through to the 15th and 16th centuries. And in that area, there were Greeks, Armenians, Kurds, and eventually Turks as well. And the Armenians, by the 19th century, had become a minority in the area, in most places, though here and there in this village or that town, like Vaughan, they were a large plurality or even a majority. Um, So it was a very mixed population, and uh, the Turkish government was relatively weak, the Ottoman government relatively weak in that area, though occasionally they would try to assert their authority against the local Kurdish emirs or nomadic peoples, whatever. So Armenians were suffering, particularly from the predations of the nomads and from the sort of lax and often repressive government of the Ottoman Turks, which in fact led to massacres, most particularly in 1894, 1896, 
actually a time when my grandmother and her family left the area. The relations between Ottomans and Armenians had been relatively, uh, we could say, benign or tolerant up through the 1870s. But then it began to turn as Armenians began to demand rights and protections from their government, begin to negotiate with some foreign powers about protections, uh, and after that, growing suspicions uh, uh, developed between the governments, first the, uh, the Sultanate under Abdul Hamid II, and then the Young Turks after 1908. There has been some kind of fundamental disagreement between the Armenians and the Turks over what happened in 1915. Um, and so we'd kind of like to explore here, you know, what does each side say happened? What is the party line of each side? And Aisha, maybe if you wanted to take off here and then others can feel free to, to jump in. Uh, the Turkish official historiography that follows the Young Turk movement's ideology argues or have been arguing that this was a civil war and interwar situation and what Ottoman officials, Young Turk officials wanted to do to move uh, Armenians who were kind of collaborating with foreign powers, mainly Russians in the region and creating some problems for the Ottoman government who was already in a war, uh, which is the world War One and Ottoman situation wasn't actually very great when we look at the the main battles that the Ottomans were involved. Um, so the Ottoman the the Republican um, uh, narrative says that they were mainly forced to move from main cities, but not all cities of Anatolia. They uh, emphasize that all the time, and uh, they were forced to move to some parts of Syria and Lebanon. And uh, the intention wasn't to annihilate them. The intention wasn't to massacre them, but um, some of them, or um, most of them, depending on who you are talking to, lost their lives on their way to those uh, refugee camps or their new destinations. Um, For the Armenian side of the story, maybe um, someone can join us, help us. Well, I I don't like to think that there's an Armenian side or a Turkish side. There's a side that historians generally, almost all except a few, except as a story. And we now have so many documents, German documents, Austrian documents, American documents, missionaries, diplomatic accounts, that we can now begin, as I tried in my book, to tell the story more accurately. Uh, I should actually very nicely put forth the official Turkish uh, uh, Republican uh, narrative. And the, the, but historians have now, and indeed, by the way, Turkish and Kurdish uh, historians in Turkey as well have come to uh, this position. Uh, basically, the government of uh, the Young Turks, Talat Pasha, Inder Pasha most particularly, decided that the Armenians were an existential threat to their empire. And though the Armenians were trying to demonstrate their loyalty, and thousands of Armenians were actually in the Ottoman army fighting against the Russians, the perception was that, no, the, Russia, the, the Armenians were collaborating with the Russians, they were a danger, and they had to be removed. So what began as deportations, in fact, uh, metastasized quickly into massacres, killing uh, people indeed committing suicide, and eventually, even when the people reached the Syrian desert, there were additional massacres going into 1916, until somewhere between uh, 600,000, that's a low figure, to a million-plus people were killed. Uh, Basically, there was no insurrection by the Armenians. 
there was some resistance once the massacres be, became known uh, or were expected in places like Van Shabin. Uh, 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 there were a number of different places in Urfa, etc. But in general, the Armenians uh, were simply victims, largely unarmed victims, against the Turkish state and against the, the Kurds in the area. And kind of tying into that, and this is where we'll throw next question, Armenians call the events of 1915 a genocide and have struggled for years to have it designated as such. Turks have struggled for just as long to prevent the events being designated as a genocide. And so we turn now to kind of question what is a genocide as opposed to other types of mass killing and why does it matter so very much to both sides to have or prevent the label genocide? I'll throw this question first to John, too. Yes, I, I think it's a bit unfortunate that the issue has come down to that of whether it is or is not a genocide. Mm-hmm. I think it's much more sensible to analyze it the way Ron has been <laughs> telling us, uh, and people can draw their own conclusions about what they think was done. Um, of course, the concept genocide didn't exist at that point in history, so no one was analyzing it at that time. Uh, under the rubric of genocide. Uh, Genocide really only came into being as a legal concept in 1948 with the Genocide uh, Convention. Um, uh, And the definition of genocide in that convention is a rather strange one. Uh, It has, you might say, changed over time since 1948. Um, So putting these events into that straitjacket, if I can call it that, um, uh, becomes a bit problematic. Um, In 1979, I was asked to be an expert witness in Phnom Penh, Cambodia at the trial of Pol Pot. Um, And he was being tried for genocide because Cambodia was a party to the Convention on Genocide. And so the question they posed to me was uh, whether the Khmer Rouge and and its leadership had had been guilty uh, of genocide. And when I, I looked at it, I, I realized that uh, no, really, nobody knew what genocide meant um, apart from what had been written in the Genocide Convention, which is rather strange. Um, the way that definition reads, you can kill large numbers of people without it being genocide. On the other hand, you can kill a very small number, and if you have the correct intent, it would be genocide. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, to talk about whether what happened in, in 1915 is or is not, you know, is not the a question that makes me comfortable. I mean, I've been involved with genocide's definition when it mattered, uh, as it did in the the Cambodia situation. I also represented Bosnia when it sued uh, Yugoslavia for genocide in the International Court of Justice, and 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 there we needed genocide to establish jurisdiction because one of the features of the Genocide Convention uh, is that if one state that's a party uh, doesn't fulfill its obligations, it's submits itself to jurisdiction in the International Court of Justice. So um, we we weren't especially anxious to call what had happened genocide, but we needed it to be genocide before we could get it before the court. So for for me, to talk about what happened in the past and whether it constitutes genocide seems a bit academic. <laughs> and so and so it seems like intent here, though, is, is a key component of it being labeled a genocide? Yes. Uh, under the definition, you uh, are guilty of genocide if you commit certain acts, and killing members of the group is one of them. Uh, and, it, and there has to be some group uh, whose members are being 
killed. Um, it doesn't necessarily have to be killing. It can be that you're uh, uh, taking children out of the group. So, you know, if you remove all children from a group, that that's considered genocide and, mm-hmm. on the theory that you're you're destroying the group. But but the intent element that, that you're talking about is key, and that is an intent to, to destroy the group as such in whole or in part. Uh, and it's hard to know in a situation like what occurred in uh, in 1915 uh, whether you have that intent. Obviously, you had substantial killing. Uh, was it to uh, remove the people or was it to destroy them as a group? Um, and we, in fact, had to litigate something rather similar in the International Court of Justice in the Bosnia case because there you had killing of people with the aim of moving them out of a certain territory. Um, and the the International Court of Justice in 1993 granted us an injunction and seemed to say that what was going on in 1992 around Sarajevo uh, constituted genocide primarily on a theory that it was moving the people out. But then the court's final judgment in the case, which came only in 2007, the court was more restrictive and said that what happened around Sarajevo was not genocide. Uh, but they said that what happened in Srebrenica in 1995 was genocide because you had much more substantial concentrated uh, executions. Uh, yeah, Ron? If I could add something to that. Great. Uh, John is perfectly right that it's the way you define genocide that would, would give this particular case uh, that label or not. So in my own work, what I've tried to do is go keep close to the U.N. definition, which is itself is somewhat problematic, and close to the original intention of Raphael Lemkin, the jurist who, in fact, invented the term genocide during the Second World War. And so I've argued that it is the targeted intentional killing by a government, by a state, uh, and the destruction and rendering impotent a racial, ethnic, cultural national group of some kind. Uh, And that can be done by a variety of processes. And in the case of the Armenians, it was done in three different ways. One, deportation, that is uprooting them from their own territory, their homes, their removal, and dispersion. Uh, Talat Pasha actually spoke about there'll be no more than 5% of Armenians in any particular area. Uh, And the second was actual physical killing. And there's Lots of evidence that these killings were carried out by the Teshkilati Masusa, a special organization related to the Young Turks, by Kurds, by order of, of uh, Young Turk leaders like uh, uh, um, Rashid Bey in Diyarbakir, etc. So we have that. And the third and most interesting is it also was assimilation. That is forced Islamization. That is, you can render people no longer Armenian by bringing mostly women and children into the families of Turks, Arabs, and Kurds. And this was done to hundreds of thousands of women and children. Men mostly were killed. This was a kind of gendered genocide. And the descendants of those uh, Islamicized Armenians are today reappearing in Turkey. And they may number in the millions, in fact, out there in eastern Anatolia. 
Um, and what I would like to add is that reducing the discussion into if it is it was a genocide or not actually creating some, I can say, unintended consequences. When you look mm-hmm. at the Turkish government's approach to the issue, they actually want to have this discussion going on so they can legitimize their approach, saying, that, oh, this wasn't a genocide, the intent wasn't clear, the intent wasn't what you saw in the following decades in Europe. So they also want to keep discussion around uh, the, the various... Mm-hmm very narrow uh, debates about if it was a genocide or not. So I mm. think the discussion should move beyond that to what actually happened, how it happened, and um, rather than labeling it in this way or that way. So uh, the understanding the conditions and understanding the aftermath is... Uh, Um, he, he said, like, in uh, modern Turkey, there are so many people coming out and saying that their grandmothers, their grandfathers were actually adopted by Turkish families. They changed their religion. They changed their name. So these are ongoing and, to me, more important discussions that we should actually take part, take that's, into consideration. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. And kind of on a related note, um, so, so yeah, why, why is this genocide so often then left out of history books or passed over so quickly? That is, I guess, you know, what I'm trying to say is why is it that while the debate is passionate for Armenians and Turks, it is often unknown and forgotten, unknown and forgotten to others around the world? Um, and maybe, Ron, if you wanted to start off here and then, and then others can, can reply. First of all, it happened far away from Europe. It happened during a time of war. Uh, the kinds of communication and knowledge that would eventually be uh, understood during the time of the Holocaust were simply not available. It was known at the time. Hundreds of articles were published. The New York Times uh, published many things about it at the time. Uh, but then it was forgotten. Turkey became an ally of the United States, an important ally in the Cold War. It's still an ally in the wars that the Americans are carrying out in the Middle East as well. So uh, because of that, uh, the United States will not recognize uh, the events of 1915 as a genocide. Uh, but also a part, part of the reason is that the Turkish government has relatively effectively, until recently, been able to obscure, confuse, and as you put it earlier, make controversial the events of 1915, this mass killing, which by any reasonable definition would be considered genocide if there weren't all this contestation against it officially. Uh, That's been obscured and confused, obfuscated in all kinds of ways. But that's changing, because as I said before, in Turkey itself, Uh, very courageous historians, journalists, and others, including my friend and our, our uh, collaborator, Harant Dink, who was murdered in 2007 on the streets of Istanbul for, in fact, talking about this subject. These things are happening. People are developing. And now as we approach the 100th anniversary of the genocide, which will be commemorated on April 24th, this very month of 2015, there'll be demonstrations, There'll be commemorations, there'll be religious ceremonies, people are going to march in Istanbul, in Yerevan, the capital of Armenia, in Washington, in New York, in Los Angeles. As we're working to remember this event, why why should we? So, Ron, you bring up a great point. People are marching, people are kind of commemorating it. We're wondering, too, what what about these passionate debates and what we can learn from this event and the historical lessons of the mass death and the struggle to define this memory? And how do we then move forward from here when two sides can't necessarily agree right away? And John, maybe you can start us off here. 
Yeah, that's a, that's a hard one. And it's uh, being raised in the public sphere most recently by the Pope. Pope Francis mm-hmm. has apparently you know, made a statement recently uh, about the Armenian genocide and has uh, caused some uh, ruffled feathers, let's say, in the, the Turkish government. Um, but but I, I think if somehow there is a way of achieving a, a more sensible discussion about the whole thing and not making it yay or nay, not asking, you know, the government of the state of Idaho to pass a resolution saying something about the Armenian genocide, uh, not uh, doing as in France where they proposed a law that would make it a crime to deny the the uh, Armenian genocide. Um, uh, there's got to be some way, uh, because as Ron says, the people who have looked at this seriously are more or less in agreement about what happened, and clearly what happened was very bad, um, uh, and, and, and that's where the process should start. Yeah, I might add to that that um, one of the, the ways one begins to have reconciliation is to bite the bullet and take a hard look at your own past. That's very difficult for nations to do. The Japanese can't look squarely in the face at what they did to Koreans uh, or to the Chinese. Uh, Americans have had trouble dealing with slavery, with uh, the genocide uh, and and uh, ethnic cleansing of American Indians, uh, or what we've done in Vietnam and have done in other countries around the world. Uh, This is a difficult thing. If the Turks honestly looked at their own history, they would have to change uh, and revise their own foundational myths about the Kurtulusavasha, uh, the war of liberation that founded the Turkish Republic. The Turkish Republic is a relatively homogeneous state because it massacred Armenians. The Ottomans massacred Armenians, drove them into the desert, and then later had population uh, exchanges or expulsions of the Greeks. And they tried even to repress the millions of Kurds who live in that country today. So those things would have to happen. And by the way, I wouldn't let Armenians off the hook either. I think Armenians, too, have to look at their own history and what they've done and how they got a homogeneous country. And why aren't there Azerbaijanis uh, living in Armenia anymore? What happened to the several hundred thousand uh, Azerbaijanis who were pushed out and live as refugees now in Azerbaijan? Almost every country, every modern nation state, not all, but Israel driving out Palestinians, uh, Australians dealing with the Aborigines, uh, and the Americans as well, have had some kind of ugly spots in their early history. And if you want reconciliation and understanding, you've got to face those hard facts straight on. And um, I would like to add that it's very true, and this official denial or denial in public minds, I think, is almost like the last step. And this is, I think, the hardest one to go beyond. Once people get rid of this denial, once, as he said, they are able to look back and see where what they did wrong and why they did that, why they committed that uh, wrongdoings, they are going to be able to go further in a better way. And when I look at the Turkish society now, uh, where, does, where that denial comes from, especially for younger generations whose 
parents or grandparents weren't even alive when the massacres or the genocide happened. So there are some recent events like the the Armenian terrorist organizations in 1970s, 80s, or what had happened in uh, Azerbaijan between Armenia and Azerbaijan or massacres there. So the, I think the one of the things that Turkish government intentionally did to keep these memories alive for public, to associate this wrongdoings of Armenians and saying that or even if we did something wrong, look, they are not uh, immune to blame. So that's why we are not going to just sit and accept what we did. So first we have to separate these events and then we have to evaluate them separately to come to a better and more useful uh, conclusion for both Turkish um, society and Armenian society, both in Armenia or diaspora. Thank you very much to all three of our guests, Aisha Baltagiolu-Brammer, uh, Origins author and actually second-time History Taught guest today, John Quigley of the OSU Law School, and Ronald Suni of the University of Michigan. Thank you all for joining us today. Thank you. This edition of the Origins Podcast History Talk was brought to you by the Public History Initiative and the Goldberg Center in the History Department at The Ohio State University. Our main editors are Stephen Kong and Nicholas bride our executive producer is David Stanley. Our audio and technical advisor is Paul Kotheimer. Our audio producers and hosts are Patrick Pacciandi and Leticia Wiggins. We'd like to offer a special thank you to local Columbus-based band, The End of the Ocean, for providing our music. Song and band information can be found on our website. You can find our podcasts and more at our website, origins.osu.edu, on iTunes and on SoundCloud. And as always, you can find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Tumblr. Thank you for listening.